You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind those lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And today, my bookish listeners, I have much to share with you. Later in the hour, fringe improv show Murder Village takes a cocktail of comfortable crime tropes, vicars, retired generals, amateur dramatic society members and shrewd little old ladies with a knack for solving murders. They shake it vigorously and pour out fresh on-the-spot performances. It's Agatha Christie like you've never seen her. Performer Liam Armour will join me to talk about Murder Village uh, later on this hour. But very, very soon, Kathleen Collette's debut novel, The Helpline, has earned comparisons with Graham Simpson's The Rosie Project and catapulted the debut author into sudden global recognition. Kathleen will join us to talk about the book, being a suddenly successful first-time novelist, and why she may not be giving up her day job just yet. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to 3 Triple R. The show is Backstory, and I'm your host, Mel Cranenberg. Now, the helpline follows the story of Jermaine Johnson, a senior mathematician and Sudoku fiend who finds herself working for the council's senior citizens helpline. Pretty soon, Jermaine finds herself embroiled in a, in a feud between the senior citizens centre and a golf club run by the handsome Don Thomas, who Jermaine has definitely met somewhere before. This whole comedic tale is seen through the all too logical eyes of our very faulty narrator, unfolds as a very readable comedy with some oddly enjoyable pie pie chart humour, among many, many other things. Uh, Joining me to discuss this book uh, is um, Catherine Collette. Uh, She can also talk a little bit, I'm sure, about her sudden and I no doubt quite unexpected success. Catherine, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me, Mel. This is, um, it's really quite something, uh, the the book comes with quite a delightful bifold um, little piece of um, information from um, the publicity department at your wonderful publisher text um, that tells the story um, of both you and this book, which I thought was really quite sweet. Um, But this book has certainly already been uh, garnering some comparisons with Graham Simpson's The Rosie Project, which is only a positive thing, I would say. Um, it has obviously attracted some international interest as well. How are you feeling as a first-time <laughs> author to have absolutely no pressure oh. um, on this on this first-time um, publication? Yeah, it's been pretty. It's been a pretty amazing experience. The helpline took me probably five or six years to write. And I guess you write a book, you know, you're on your own most of the time. You know that in all likelihood, the only people that will read it will be your husband and your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, to get text publishing to have picked it up and published it is pretty amazing in itself, let alone uh, to have it go on to sell in other territories as well. It's been... 
it's been exciting. <laughs> Let's put this in a bit of context as well, because I think there's a vast misapprehension about, uh, you know, what a best-selling book looks like even in Australia. And to put it in kind of quite bold terms, I would say, you know, selling 10,000 copies uh, of a first print run is, or at all, <laughs> is considered to be a bestseller really uh, in this market. We have quite a small uh, market comparable to others out there in the world. So, Getting that international recognition and, and potential sales is a really big thing for a local Australian writer because it means you might actually, I don't know, at some stage potentially make a living. <laughs> well, that would be pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, as I said, I know you know that you're lucky to get published full stop. I know a lot of great writers and authors whose books haven't been published. So uh, just to see the book in hard copy form in a bookshop on a shelf here has been has been cool enough. Um, the process of selling international rights was an experience I didn't anticipate. And what was so cool about it, I suppose, particularly with the international, with the, the rights deal in the US, is it probably negotiations went on between publishers for a couple of days. And because of the time difference, I was always going to bed just as they were beginning. And that was a little bit like Christmas in itself. Like you knew you would wake up to something really, really cool in the morning. Um, it just had to get to sleep and let it unfold. <laughs> That's quite lovely. Um, I also um, really want to talk obviously about the book itself. Um, it's uh, it's quite a, a kind of gorgeous little comedy um, that you've created here. I want to know where it came from. Uh, Jermaine is uh, a unique character. She loves a pie chart. I have to say we do not have that in common. I am <laughs> utterly uh, terrified of um, charts of all sorts. Um, so I was a little trepidatious coming to this. I'm like, mm, it's got a pie that's supposed to represent a pie chart on the front. <laughs> we might not get along this book and I, um, but it is written in an extraordinarily accessible way. Um, Jermaine is a, a really empathetic, uh, well, you know, the reader will empathise with her plight, although she struggles at times to entirely empathise with other characters, um, although she does try. Um, I think it is uh, definitely a book that um, that will endear people. Where did Jermaine and this book come from? <laughs> Jermaine herself, so I'm an engineer, uh, I work in sewerage actually, um, but Jermaine is a mathematician. There's probably a lot of similarities between mathematicians and engineers, certainly in terms of the stereotype. She's someone who is really good with numbers, but not so great with people. And the seed of Jermaine came from an experience I had working myself on a telephone helpline. So my first job out of uni, I worked on a government-run helpline. It had to do with terms and conditions of people's employment. So people would call up and ask how much they should be getting paid and all this sort of thing. And to answer the question was actually quite involved. You had to ask lots of questions and work out where they worked and what time it was and sometimes how old they were. And... I cut a lot of corners. I would just sort of get the vibe and then come up with an answer, which is, of course, exactly not what you want to be doing. And so at the end of my first week, there's probably 300 people in the call centre. I had answered the most calls of anyone and there was a really big fuss made about this. My team leader was sort of going on about it. His boss was going on about it. And I just thought, I've done such a good job. They're thinking I'm amazing at this. And it wasn't until they came over and said, we actually think you need some more training that I realised 
they didn't hold the same view. <laughs> and so that was always kind of amusing to me. And what was funny was that period of not knowing where I was thinking I'm doing amazingly and literally everybody else is thinking she's terrible at this. And that is kind of what Jermaine is like. Yeah. She is a person who constantly thinks she's doing an amazing job and everyone, you know, reader included, is, yeah, it's not quite on the same page. Although I do sort of love her about that. All too often <laughs> we have self-doubting characters and I love that, you know, Jermaine isn't that, although the rest of the world hasn't necessarily caught up with her point of view. Um, but it does in many ways and I think what it, she's an incredibly endearing character. Um, she does... <clears throat> kind of, you know, really win you over in a very big oh, way throughout you. the book um, and I think intentionally so. But this has got a lo lot of lovely kind of characters that um, I guess, you know, might be familiar from, from some of the better comedies, I guess, out there. You know, you've got a, um, let's just say it's pretty obvious early on that there's something quite fishy between the relationship <laughs> of Verity the um, the mayor and uh, Don, the, um, the owner of the local golf club, who... Got Don himself turns out to be a character that um, Jermaine knew from a previous life. Uh, he was a Sudoku champion and she's trying to work out why he's taken on this new character. And you're not sure at first if maybe she's mixing him up with someone else or not. And that, that becomes something that you, you find out more about as the book progresses. Um, there's also the you know, cantankerous kind of self-appointed, uh, I guess, head of the local um, senior citizens community centre who um, you kind of dislike at first, but, you know, as things go along, it gets more and more complicated, uh, that relationship. And, you know, Jermaine's loyalties and the reader's loyalties obviously rove around throughout the book. Um, but it is really written but like the best of kind of light-hearted comedies with a sort of like local big bad, I guess, and... Um, you know, some kind of uh, other citizens fighting against uh, against the odds, um, but they're all characters that have got flaws. Let's just say none <laughs> of them none of them are entirely one hundred percent totally empathetic. Did you enjoy writing this book? Uh, were you really keenly interested in in kind I, of comedies? Yeah, absolutely. I loved. I had a lot of fun writing it. I guess I started writing it, I work, as I said, as an engineer, um, but for a while I got a job at a council in a community development type team, so exact opposite of engineering. And it was there that I met with a colleague that sat next to me. Her job was to look after senior citizen centres and I hadn't even really heard of a senior citizen centre before, but there were, say, a dozen of them that in the council area uh, but this woman, she spent 99% of her time at one centre interacting with one woman uh, who was a very problematic woman. <laughs> she was president of the club. And uh, I have always really struggled to describe what she was like. And then I heard David Gillespie give an interview on his book on psychopaths. And so he basically talks about psychopaths as very sort of narcissistic and power hungry and lying a lot. And the example he uses is Donald Trump. But the woman I thought of was this president of this senior citizens club. And she, I met her, found her very compelling. And she was actually the reason that I started writing The Helpline. It started out life as a short story and then evolved to become a novel. And what I liked about her, the character in the book is very different from the character um, the person that I met in real life, 
was about how invested she was in something that to an outsider seems so small. And that's the really nice thing about local government. You kind of forget that it's political, uh, but it is deeply political. It's just that the stakes can sometimes seem very low. And that, yeah, that's, I think, where you can where there is a sense of comedy at times. Absolutely. And it's great because the main, I guess, feud is over car park usage uh, in, um, you know, the spillover car park usage from the golf club to the senior citizen centre. But is it really about <laughs> just car park usage? And you really do play that up to beautiful comic effect throughout the book. Um, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm speaking with author Kathleen Colette, uh, who is the author of The Helpline. Uh, it is her debut novel and is already uh, starting to get very noticed, uh, both locally and internationally. Uh, so you're going to be hearing a lot more about this wonderful book. Uh, let me talk a little bit about some of the other elements in here, like the pie charts, for example. <laughs> what made you to decide to wind in those kind of little elements? Um, well, Jermaine is a person who is very mathematically and numerically inclined, and she's someone who sees the cell, who sees the world in very black and white terms. And I really like the idea of someone doing that almost in a literal sense. So when she's deciding, trying to make a decision, she works out the probability of different outcomes, and that's um, why she takes one course of action over another. I also, as a kid. Um, I guess I loved books like Penny Pollard's Diary and uh, Secret Diary of Adrian Mole and those sort of books, which would often have, would play around with form a bit. And so in some ways, the inclusion of the graphs and all of those sorts of things are an experiment in form. Absolutely. It does have a kind of flavour that I think this could be enjoyed by a young adult audience as well as a, an older audience. It is, I really want to stress this, an incredibly readable book. Uh, it's one that, you know, I sort of, I, I think, devoured in, in an afternoon and um, I, I really think that, that people will find it mm, a very you. enjoyable read um, if you have a little bit of a break at all, um, a weekend free, you'll certainly find this quite delightful. Um, I, I do feel like, uh, you know, there are elements here that, you know, there is a fair comparison with this in the Ro Rosie Project in the sense that you're really in the mind of someone who is quite logical, quite literal, um, and who sees the world quite differently to those around them. But I don't feel like, you know, that certainly there's there's some character stereotypes that you're playing on, but uh, some of the other characters definitely have a, a bit of richness to them as well. So you are getting a sense of flavour woven into this too. How did you find, I, I'm always fascinated by people who are writing in that kind of fault narrative voice. How do you write that, do you think? What's the craft behind it? Um, I guess I always had a really strong sense of Jermaine as a person um, and that idea of how she sees the world and how the reader is perceiving the same situation is something that happens throughout the course of the novel. Um, but I guess... You know, the, the conflict for her internally is this conundrum between the fact that she is alone um, and she's ambitious. And I guess the arc for her across the story is she goes from being very ambitious and very alone to being less ambitious and less alone. 
I guess the you know there are comparisons in some ways between Jermaine and, and the Don Tillman character in the Rosie project. Jermaine is obviously female uh, and a lot of the characters in the helpline are female. She's in her late 30s and she's single. One of the things I was very conscious of is often when we tell stories about women in their late 30s, uh, who are single, the the relationship that they're seeking is a romantic relationship. Mm. Um, and often there'll be, you know, the idea of kids or not kids bound up in there as well. But I never, I was not interested in that story. For Jermaine, the relationship that she's seeking is one of connection. And that really came from that idea of, uh, sorry, is one of friendship. And there was one really beautiful moment, I think, where she, she looks at the character of Don and she sort of thinks, I want to... You know, I I feel about him how, you know, she names a couple of the other characters, Eva feels about sandwiches or <laughs> um, her mother feels about cats that I want to sort of squeeze him. And I just thought that was just adorable because oh, it was one you. of those, those moments where this isn't necessarily about romantic love. She is kind of earnestly trying for connection. She sometimes doesn't, she purports not to care so much sometimes when things don't happen, but you do get the sense that she does care. Yeah, she um, does. She pushes it down a bit, but um, but that is something that she's aiming for, as we all are. And and I think she also is someone who confuses accolades with affection. So um, she desperately wants to be employee of the month um, because I think she sees that as some sort of external validation. Um, but the issue is always for Jermaine that she's actually not very good at her job. <laughs> Um, <laughs> she is in a customer service job, which I thought was extreme. Yeah. Even though she does want to be a manager of people, uh, it's maybe not her strongest no, uh, quality. No. <laughs> um, although, you know, is it? That's <laughs> that's another question um, that, that you could raise throughout the course of the book is, you know, are those qualities that we think of as the most kind of, um, I guess, valuable qualities, uh, you know, maybe even sometimes being polite or saying the thing you're supposed to say, is that necessarily mm. the best thing? Sometimes is it better just to be direct and honest? Um, I don't know. But I think uh, certainly Jermaine does explore those things in the book. It's true. I think sometimes of Jermaine, I remember we had a a Dutch exchange student staying at our house, you know, um, years ago now. But some of the things that she would say, you would could easily take offence at. But just the way she said them was so honest uh, that you kind of didn't take offence. Uh, yeah, so sometimes it's in the delivery, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, before you go, I do have to touch on uh, the fact that your job is certainly mentioned in um, some of the material around this book. And you did briefly sort of mention <laughs> that you are an engineer and you work in sewage, um, which I, I think do. I'm hoping this is something that you are, and sorry to say this, going to plumb for a <laughs> later book. Is that likely to to crop up? I'm not sure. I, yeah, I'm still, I, I still work in sewage. Uh, so I work in areas that uh, are currently on septic systems and go in and put sewers in. It's actually something I really love and it's a nice complement to writing because it's, A, it doesn't use the same part of your brain, but also it's very real 
you know, sometimes people will call up and say, you know, there's sewage spilling across the front of my yard and what am I supposed to do? And that, that can be quite grounding. Absolutely. Whereas when you're in the world of words and, you know, thinking should the word be scarlet or red or, you know, maybe some funny shade of pink. I think there was um, a delightful <laughs> quote that, um, that's, been, that's been pulled out in your publicity material, which is something along the lines of a boss said to you that shit is our bread and butter. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's just great. My first day he said it might be shit to other people, but it's our bread and butter. It's great. <laughs> it's really great. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that um, that we're going to hear more from you, Catherine, and perhaps something that, that does uh, touch on your current job. And, and just briefly, it is worth mentioning that just because this book has been successful, it doesn't mean that you can give up your day job or even want to. Yeah, that's right. I, as I said, well, uh, you know, Graham Simpson's probably been able to give up his day job, but the reality is, you know, not many authors get to do that. And probably uh, I really like the balance. I like doing both. So it works for me. It <laughs> definitely will give you interesting material to draw That's on. That's right. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for coming and talking to us uh, about your book, The Helpline. Uh, I you wish you all the me. best with the success that you are currently receiving. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure. Uh, that was uh, Catherine Collette, uh, author of The Helpline. Uh, it's out now through text. Uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. You're listening to 3 Triple R. The show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg, your host. Now, Agatha Christie's comfortable crime has followed us well into the 21st century with old country houses, the local vicar, retired general and shrewd older ladies with a yen for detective work, all very familiar parts of the genre. Taking these ingredients and throwing them in the air to see where they land is a fringe show, Murder Village. Joining me is Liam Amor, one of the performance troupe behind Murder Village. Liam, welcome to Backstory. Thank you very much for having me. So tell me what decided you uh, on a take around comfortable crime in the kind of improv environment? It's, it, it's an interesting uh, al- alchemic mix, isn't it? You know, on one hand, uh, you've got this sort of uh, uh, legendary author and the other hand, this sort of spontaneous art form <laughs> and you sort of mix them together and see what happens. Um, I, uh, it it's, uh, was brought to Melbourne from Brisbane originally by a guy called Dave Massingham, who's the director of the show and also plays Detective Inspector Owen Gullett. Uh, he is uh, uh, an improviser from way back. And uh, he originally this show was a uh, mashup of Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie uh, and improvised. And uh, for this particular fringe season, um, we've uh, just concentrated on the sort of Miss Marple kind of character. Mm. And... Uh, Uh, We've got a a rotating cast of uh, about five or six improvisers and we we thought it's a wonderful world to explore, this village with murderous intent (laughs) and everyone has a motive, everyone has a dark sort of secret somewhere and the tropes themselves are fantastic and so wonderful to play with, so... There's sort of something about it, isn't it, that, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I very much grew up on Agatha Christie and Cluedo. Mm. And you stop and think about it and you think, this is kind of horrendous. I mean, even the the notion of comfortable crime as, you know, being in these quite sort of um, fuzzy environments, but something dark is under the surface. I guess it's, you know, 
I mean, if you really want to dig beneath the metaphor, it's actually quite extraordinarily dark. But uh, the way it plays out is a lot more kind of lighthearted than murder really should be. But this is <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, one, somebody once said the best, art is all about life and death, so that's that's what we're dealing with. The the uh, on one hand, people coming who are sort of Christie fans will love the the seeing the characters and and the, and the sort of bits and pieces and the minutiae that we pull out. But on the other hand, it's hilarious <laughs> and it's weird and and crazy every night. So, and it's it's um, on one hand we try and honour that world as well but we sort of because it's, we're being spontaneous and we're we're seeing what happens on the night a plot line suddenly appear out of thin air and weird clues and and red herrings and misdirections sort of happens all the time you know? i really want to talk about this aspect the kind of murder plot aspect because anyone who was a, a massive reader of christy uh, mm. i was particularly this way inclined when i was a little kid uh, and that was you know you like working out a puzzle and they're heavily plotted books they're yeah. really you know the clues are littered out uh you know usually the first three chapters hold most of the clues of what's going to happen but you know they really were worked out very finely ahead of time i'm just super interested in how an improv show is taking on that kind of you know the the murder mystery sort of puzzle element yeah. how are you what parts are, are worked out ahead of time how much of it is improvised okay so let me just say that everything on the night is improvised but the uh, lead up to it is i guess like any play we rehearse characters um, and in this instance we create the characters ourselves so we spend a lot of time sort of uh, delving into the stories and the types of um, people that would inhabit a village in, a, in the 1950s in, in England and we sort of each grabbed uh, a handful of characters uh, I myself play a, a, a retired colonel uh, uh, Robert Pusey and uh, an antique, uh, an antiquities dealer, Bassam Rad Montefiore. Uh, there's all these sort of exotic characters that could come in and out of the, the village as well. So we have those uh, as our sort of, uh, as the basis. And then on the night when the audience is lining up to come in, we ask them, we go out into the audience and we ask them for, uh, we, we show them who, who are the characters in the night and we say, who, who is the murderer and who is to be killed? Um, I should point out uh, the the woman playing um, uh, the detective, Miss Marmalade, is actually sitting in the theatre, so she can't see or hear any of this. Oh. So, uh, uh, so we get How a talent. Wonderful! Yeah. So you know, but Miss Marmalade. No, no. So she gets to work it out along with the audience at the same time. Miss Marmalade, delightful. Miss Mar her first name Jemima or <laughs> Jammy. Uh, so uh, that's great. So we we take a poll. And we work out who's who's wants to be uh, who's going to be killed that night, and we also get from the audience a clue and the murder weapon. So it's like it is like Cluedo, I guess, in some ways. So you sort so of, the audience is in on it. They oh yeah. know who is who's going to be murdered. Well, no, and they who's don't. Oh, they, they don't. don't. So so they they can give a suggestion like who okay. they think, and then we tally up. And then once the audience has gone inside, we very quickly work out who's going to die and who's going to be the murderer. And then we have to work out what the clue is and the and the murder weapon. So once we've got those, then we just begin. And Dave Massingham, who plays the detective, is sort of the on... 
he's he's the director as well, so he's directing sort of in the show as he goes. So he'll set us up with, uh, you know, on the village green, the colonel meets uh, Lady Agapanthus Grey <laughs> and they discuss the fate or the upcoming fate or something. So... That's a, that'll be a hint for us, and then we'll just take it from there and see what happens. That's great. Yeah. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3 R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm joined today by Liam Amor, who is one of the performance troupe behind Murder Village, which is a improv act uh, around or based on Agatha Christie-style setup in a, a village um, filled with uh, seemingly kind of sweet and innocent characters that are all capable of dastardly crime and murder. Um, it's a really, uh, it's really fantastic, isn't it? Uh, those of us who have been known to indulge in these comfortable crime scenarios have to admit that villages don't tend to have a huge population. So the... <laughs> Wait, Mel, are you saying you've indulged in these comfortable crimes? Yeah, I might have. <laughs> I might be guilty. Um, I haven't actually done the crimes. Oh, okay. so I've, uh, That's I've, what they uh, say. Yeah, yes, right. right. Not to my knowledge. Not yet. I'm sure I've been tempted. Um, although, like, murders, like a suburban environment is really ripe for that. And there's mm. a huge kind of trend at the moment of of really kind of rural crime. That's really kind of huge at the moment is, is a big sort of setting mm. for places for people to Scan- get murdered. It's the Scandinavian influence. Scandy. <laughs> the Scandy crime. Those terrifying Scandinavians. Yeah. Like, I shudder every time I go into Ikea now. <laughs> what will happen around the corner? Terrible. Um, so, look, murder... Murder Village is, is such a wonderful title because really that's what they are. They're like, if this was actually happening, it would be not only national but international news yes. and the number of deaths would be significant <laughs> for like, the population. It's like, uh, uh, yes, any of these places where you go, why would anyone ever move there? That's right, there's Especially actual serial Village. killers <laughs> that are going at, on there. At the start, uh, Amberly Cull, who plays Miss Marmalade, comes out and sort of quizzes the audience. And the first question is, who likes murder? <laughs> Most of the time, everyone's gone, yay. A couple of people have said, yeah. What do you think it's about? I mean, there's, a, there's a podcast that uh, I've also been guilty of listening to, which is called My Favourite Murder. Mm. Um, the people who listen to it with some devotion are, are referred to as murderinos, um, which I just think is great. Um, right. but, but what is it, do you think? There's that- a fascination about it, I think. There is that uh, what drives someone to take a life and... And then the 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 mystery uh, behind it, the the reveal, the clues. Then also justice is it served? Um, every night, one way or another, justice is served. <laughs> but the town actually lacks a jail, so <laughs> they generally get a house That's arrest. Probably why there's so much mass murder going on in that that town. Oh I yeah, imagine. so you can get away with it. <laughs> Ninety-five percent of the time in Murder Village, it seems to be crimes of passion. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We've had, we've had some interesting uh, murder weapons. We've had a fox, a, a taxidermied fox. Uh, last night was a, 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 a sword, a Gurkha sword. Uh, uh, we've also had uh, clues have included a, a purse with uh, with human hair inside, uh, a, a royal coronation plate. That was smashed, so we get a whole bunch of different things, and and it's uh, and it's also, I guess it's fascinating for the audience to watch and try and piece it together as well. Mm. I mean, sometimes you can sort of tell straight off who's maybe targeted as the victim. 
Uh, but we'd like to throw in a few red herrings as well, okay. just like a, a good Christy. How did you uh, work all of this stuff out? Did you do a lot of research of Christy books ahead of time? We all uh, bring different uh, interests as, a, as improvisers. Uh, I myself love mystery books and I grew up, Okay, going personal for a second. I, I grew up uh, in, in Baxter on Joan Lindsay's property uh, who wrote um, Bitney Can Hang Rock. Mm-hmm. And she was a fascinating woman and uh, I would always quiz her about stuff as a kid and she was very nice to me. And, um, and then uh, one of the first uh, forays into improvisation and writing was we did a show where we played dead authors and I played Raymond Chandler on that. And that, again, uh, there's this sort of affinity with the mystery and the murder that, that, I, that goes so well with sort of long-form improvisation and playing, which is great fun. I'm really fascinated by this Lindsay kind of experience. What kind of things did you quiz her about? Oh, well, she was, uh, she was a great woman. Um, we lived on a cottage just off her property in, in Baxter. And it's um, called Mulberry Hill down there. And uh, I used to love going into her, uh, her big sort of lounge room where she'd have, she'd have visitors and guests and stuff there. And I was sort of uh, the... Um, appointed uh, cellar boy. I would go down and get fetch bottles of gin and stuff for her, <laughs> for her guests. Um, but she was always writing us little stories. And I mean, as children, we never really understood uh, the importance around the book, um, the picnic book. Um, and, but I do, I do remember seeing in her bookshelf, she had uh, uh, all, all the different versions of the translations and they were huge. There were so many of them. I mean, this is a book that's obviously gone around the world. Um, and uh, she would write, my uh, my sister and I, she would write us little stories and little books and illustrate them and stuff. And I was very fortunate to, to know her um, before she died. Yeah, that's really an extraordinary story mm. and a whole interview in and of itself, <laughs> yes. I imagine. Anyway, Murder Village. Murder, <laughs> Murder Village. Village, that's right. Um, I look really... Uh, one of the things that I guess uh, I'm kind of amazed by with things like improv is, mm. you know, how people, how it all works together, but particularly for a highly geared thing like a, a murder mystery where people right. really want satisfaction. Are you relying quite a lot on people's sort of enjoyment and goodwill and the, the kind of time they get to spend with these kind of swi- quite beloved tropes of the genre? I feel very, I've, uh, an immense amount of responsibility uh, in also wanting to try and get it right, right for the audience as well. I also know that sometimes, um, even though it's sort of set in 1950s, a, a modern day parlance will creep in, and I'll, I'll you know kick myself afterwards and go, "Why did I say that? It wasn't around then." You know, um, but there is uh, the beauty of improvisation is that uh, the team itself uh, all work together to. Um, to create the story and we sort of essentially the philosophy is yes and we we boil it down to sort of uh, accepting each other's offers but what david's very cleverly done is he's created a structure within to 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 work the improv within so we know at the start we'll um reveal the characters and their own particular quirks and traits and then we'll see how they sort of relate to each other and perhaps any secrets that come out and then what we're doing there is and slowly building a, a sort of a motive if you like to, for the for the victim so each of us have a have a sort of motive uh, for wanting to do away with them uh but only one of us is a killer uh, and then, and then we have the murder itself, and we see that in in a sort of uh, very dramatic fashion, uh, one sided view, if you like. <laughs> and then, 
and then it's up to Miss Marmalade to come along and start to uh, uh, um, pick apart the stories and that sort of thing. We get a lot of flashbacks. It's great fun. That's fantastic. Yeah. And how does Miss Marmalade generally do? Is she up to her not quite namesake, Miss Marple? <laughs> she she is a, a version of. It's great. She's uh, well, she's a bit more perky than Miss <laughs> Marple. Uh, Amberly Cole's fantastic. She does. Uh, she goes into it. Sometimes she's. Uh, with, uh, along with the audience, she's as confused <laughs> as they are. Sometimes we make it too hard for her. But David's very good at sort of leading her along as well. So uh, together, the wonderful thing about this is even if she accuses the wrong person, <laughs> we can find a way out of it <laughs> regardless. Uh, I, the other night, I think we all all guilty of something <laughs> in the end. We were all murdered somewhere in the past. You know? <laughs> so That's fantastic. Well, um, I am definitely... Um, excited to find out uh, how audiences react to this and I would love to hear more about it um, as it progresses and I'm hoping that after the Fringe uh, you may find another home for this because it does sound like something quite delightful. We'd love to. It's been doing so well. We've had sold out houses and stuff so we think there's definitely legs to it. Liam Amor, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the uh, dastardly murder village uh, that you are involved with. My pleasure. Thank you, Mel. That was uh, Liam Amor, who is one of the performance at Murder Village, which uh, lovers of comfortable crime will no doubt enjoy. Uh, this has been um, a really swiftly moving hour, I have to say, as it often is uh, on Backstory. I always enjoy uh, my time here so much uh, with such incredible guests. I do want to thank uh, Kathleen Collette, uh, who was the author of The Helpline, out now through text publishing. Uh, it's something that I'm quite sure is going to be making waves um, very much already earning comparisons with uh, Graham Simpson's The Rosie Project. Uh, I'd also like to thank Liam Amor, uh, who came in to discuss his quite uh, incredible uh, improv troops uh, take on Agatha Christie with Murder Village, which uh, sounds like such fun, really. Uh, and I definitely, definitely uh, want to get a load of that um, amazing comfortable crime goodness. Three, triple, ah. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.